Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Lockbox, a podcast providing real estate professionals with action items for success. My name is Jeffrey Broger, and I'm going to be your host. I'm the founder of two real estate marketing and tech companies, Steezy.Digital and RealNurture.io. In this podcast, you'll learn from top 1% real estate and mortgage brokers the exact secrets to their success. Welcome to Lockbox. Welcome to Lockbox. My name is Jeffrey Broger, and I'm here today with Bethany Babcock. Bethany, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So why don't you tell our listeners who you are, where you're from? All right. So my name is Bethany Babcock. I'm from San Antonio, one of the owners and the founder of the Foresight Commercial Real Estate in San Antonio. And lived here and been in the business for about 18 years now. So uh, that's a little bit about me. Mom of three and married for 13 years. Amazing. So what got you into real estate? Accident. Um, as many people, <laughs> when it comes to real estate, I think that's a theme. I'm not very many people are like, I really want to get into that. I was sent to the wrong job interview when I was 18. I had moved to the United States when I was 18. I was trying to get my first job. I went to a um, temp agency. I was like, I'll take anything. Like, There's an opening for an insurance person's admin. I said, great, I'll take it. And it was a temp placement. So I went over. Well, they mixed up the papers. I showed up at a family office that owned a bunch of office buildings and shopping centers here in town. And they were looking for an admin and they were like, you know, just stick around. Let's interview you for it. And I got that job. And I stayed at that company for six years and ended up managing their San Antonio portfolio while I went to college. What? Yeah, crazy. That is crazy. And you mentioned coming to the United States. So where were you born and raised? I was born in the United States and then I moved to Latin America. I was raised down there in Chile. Amazing. Yeah. Wow. What a cool experience. Yeah, it is. My parents were Christian missionaries, so they were establishing churches and schools and such. So I grew up down there. They call us missionary kids. Wow. What a unique upbringing. Yeah, very unique. Yeah. And I just value traveling. So I'm going to go off topic here for a second because, (laughs) you know, I think this is what makes podcasts interesting. I studied abroad when I was 18 years old. And I mean, well, I guess 19, but I went to Australia not something too crazy. They still spoke English, but it opened my eyes to how closed off I was to the rest of the world. And so to live in a different country growing up and then come back, something that you mentioned before this, when we like took a little break, you're like, oh, I'm super grateful you said that. Gratitude. That's the key that I'm trying to get at here. It created so much gratitude when I went to a different country and saw how the rest of the world lived and saw that people were inherently good. And then I came back and I had so much appreciation for everything that I had taken for granted. 
And so has that been your experience through living in a different country, coming back here, realizing the abundance and everything that's around us, and then just having such a more grateful attitude towards life? Oh, no doubt. Yeah. So we were in a more rural part. We weren't in the capital part of the country. And so, yeah, we got to see all sorts of people from diverse income streams and and our um, income demographics and things like that. So it is interesting because I feel like I have both been the rich kid and I have also been the poor kid. And the only thing that mattered was which side of the uh, border I was on. Right. And so when I lived overseas, being an American, we were perceived as the rich kids. Um, but we made the same amount of money, right? But here in right. the United States, we're just afforded so many more opportunities and life is easier. So if you look at a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of our clients that we work with, a lot of them have one thing in common, and that is that they come from overseas. And so I see that in the wonder, you know, what is it about those other cultures? What is it that makes them more successful? I really think sometimes the that their desire to come to the United States, that drive and that ambition is what sets them apart. Maybe not so much the culture or the specific country. Um, they're just a unique set of people that are like, I will walk away from everything I know and try something completely different and risk it all. Well, that also happens to be a common characteristic of entrepreneurs. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I've lived in Southeast Asia where a good working wage is like $200 a month. And you know, most of the rest of the world, it lives on like $2 a day. So to come from anywhere, I mean, maybe they're living on $1,000 a month, but then they come to the United States and they see the opportunity and the abundance there's that drive to achieve where, you know, someone who's born here, they might start making five or six grand a month from a salary. And they're like, oh, that's good. Like, that's all I need for the rest, you know, and there's that complacency, but really value that really value the gratitude that you came into this podcast with. So I wanted to acknowledge that. Oh, thank you. Absolutely. So now moving on to commercial real estate and everything that you're doing today, you started with this family firm. And then from there, it seems like you wanted to then take charge and take your own real estate office to the next level. So I'd be happy to learn more about that transition of, of you know, leaving the family practice and, and then going and opening your own commercial real estate firm. Yeah, well, there was a little bit of a time um, period between then. And really right. what it was is I had a bit of a challenge um, after working at that family office for a while, I became kind of disenchanted with the industry, a little discouraged that perhaps mm. the industry didn't have everything I wanted it to be when I couldn't be who I needed to be. I couldn't have the integrity that I wanted to have and still be successful in the industry. So I became kind of disenchanted and considered leaving it all together. Um, but I had just graduated college. I had five years of work experience in the industry that no one wanted at the time because it was 2008. And it was in the, at the start of the crisis. And here I was newly married and I Honestly, the whole market and the whole world shut down. No one was hiring. Hiring freezes were everywhere. And right as I was coming out of college, even though I had a decent resume. So I got pretty much the only job I could at the time. Um, but it happened to be something I wanted to do, which was investment sales and selling commercial real estate, commission only. So there was no risk to the firm. And I went and worked for Marcus and Millichap, national firm to do that. And I focused on shopping centers of all things because I really found a mentor that was doing shopping centers and I admired him and wanted to be like him. And so I did that for about six years. And mm. during that period, it was incredibly humbling. It put me a little bit on more grounded flooring because I definitely had pretty highly of myself while I was in college and got to do some pretty cool things. And then was very, very quickly humbled to try to sell something that no one wanted for, for six years. Right. And it was really, really challenging. The benefit was I got, I was a gold collar. So I spent all this time developing relationships with owners of shopping centers and office buildings in San Antonio. So 
over time, uh, we started to hear a reoccurring theme that they really needed a good management and leasing department um, or division to be able to sell the assets that they wanted to get out of. They couldn't do it until its problems were fixed. So we'd refer it out because our firm only did sales. And then it would come back to us and they'd be like, that was a horrible recommendation. <laughs> they didn't do what they said they were. They don't get it. We'd give them some advice, send them somewhere else. It was just this reoccurring theme. And uh, my mentor at the time uh, was like, let's let's do this. Let's start a management at least. And you came from a management background. Let's go do it. I was like, no way. I don't want to go back to that. Um, and there's no way. I've earned my stripes. I'm finally starting to make money. I felt pretty proud of where I had finally gotten. And I didn't want to start all over again. Right. And, um, here I was a new mom too. And he said, listen, everyone kind of thinks you're on maternity leave and no one really expects much. Like you can do this and no one would see it coming. I thought, you know, in some ways that was a odd thing to say, but it took all the pressure off. Mm. But, you know, I could feel and no one would even know. So why not shoot for the stars and do something wild and crazy, right? Well, I'm just sitting at home where they, you know, they think I'm on maternity leave. So during that time, I started planning and preparing and launched it in May of 2014. We decided that we were going to be a brokerage firm and announced it before I had even finished uh, taking the brokerage exam. So thank God I passed before I got my first client. Um, in hindsight, I probably should have waited, but luckily that worked out and was able to sign my first client shortly thereafter, which was just one. Um, but it did grow fairly quickly uh, over the course of the next few years. And it turned out that, you know, a lot of people were kind of caught by surprise by that. They were not really expecting this firm to come out of nowhere. You know, who is that? Where, how do they, what connections, who do they know? What, what, how that happened? So it was kind of fun. Interesting. So you built momentum at M&M and then you, with that mentor left and started this brokerage. So are you still working together with that mentor today? We are. Yeah. He wasn't able to come over day one like I was um, because he was really successful in investment sales and doing really well there. And so our original plan was that he would stay there and do investment sales. I would come over here and do leasing management and we'd refer business back and forth to each other. Got it. Um, but he's such a good mentor that a lot of people really wanted to be on his team and be mentored by him. And he loved that and was really good at it. But he was having a hard time recruiting talent to be on his team because of the firm he was with. A lot of people didn't really like the culture. And they were asking me, hey, can you mentor me to do investment sales? I was like, no, I can't do that because I can't go. I don't want to compete against him. So ultimately, I was like, why don't you just come to your own firm? Like, come like, here. Come over and already, man. <laughs> seriously, we're waiting for you. And so he did. And his whole team followed him. And so we started the firm in 2014. Wow. I think it was 2019, January, that he came over. And things really started to, to roll. And it was just more fun. <laughs> All in yeah. The wow. How exciting is that? So... Now to give my listeners some context as to where your office is today, what was your transaction volume last year? Uh, that is a great question. Um, low, Ballpark. I would say very, very low. <laughs> um, in terms of fees, I would say we were under 2 million in marks. It was a really low year for us in 2020. We focused on restaurants. What about so prior to COVID? Maybe three or so. We're a small firm. We're not talking, okay. I'm not talking about deal volume. I'm talking about fees. Right. Okay. So and we're about a third... Uh, brokerage, third investment sales, and about a third property management. So it doesn't represent our whole revenue, but. Got it. Okay. No, that makes sense. So now I have some context as to, to where you are and what advice would you give to someone that might be, I don't know, they're out there on a commercial team. They're making a couple hundred thousand a year. Maybe they now want to go start their own firm. 
Like what advice would you give them to maybe either level up their personal sales and become an entrepreneur or make that leap, become an entrepreneur? Yeah, I would say, how much do you want to work and how much do you want to work for free? <laughs> um, because that is one thing that is the distinction between being self-employed and um, becoming an entrepreneur and having a team, right? Uh, these are, they can be both uh, beneficial to you in terms of deal volume, or they can be balanced to feed, right? And for a while, they're going to be balanced to feed. And that sounds bad, but let's be honest, right? That's how it works in the beginning. You have to do a little bit of that uh, to get people on their feet. And so the first few years were really, really hard because I didn't really anticipate if I had just been solo, I would have had my best years ever after starting the company. And I could have, it would have been awesome, but I had a bigger vision in place. And I learned that I had to make the distinction between what do I love more? Do I love brokerage more? Do I love running a business more? Do you like building a team? Do you like mentoring? Do you like training? Do you like marketing more? Or do you like transaction? If your goal is to do it to make more money and you think by doing that, you should run your own firm, don't do it because the amount of time it takes to run all of those things, all the conversations, all the HR, all the PT, all of that will take your deal volume and just crush it. But if you just really enjoy running a company, then go for it. And, but you kind of have to make that distinction. And at some point, you're going to have to step back a bit from brokerage in order to take the company to the next level. Gosh, that is so interesting how similar it is to Cutco. <laughs> I, I was a Cutco rep. And when you don't fail in the first two weeks and quit, and then you stick with it for a few years, you get to this point where now you're making the highest commission level in the company and you have a choice. You go CSP, which is Cutco Sales Professional. And a lot of my good friends are still doing that. 10 years later, you know, making multiple hundred thousand dollars per year selling knives. (laughs) And with that, you make more income sooner And it's all about the sales, right? But the other route is management. You could start to become an assistant manager and a sales manager and your personal sales volume totally suffers. And now you're making a half percent on the office or a 1% on the office override, right? So now your focus is to motivate, build the team, recruit, right? Interview, train, develop. And through that process, help the team get to the point where you're making as much or more as CSPs. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting because when I kind of experienced both as I was going through college and I was doing just the CSP route where I was just selling cut code, I kind of pay the bills. And, and then I got back for summers and I would do management. I found that I gravitated towards the management. I found it more fulfilling. I found that when I was able to help someone achieve something that they did not think that they were capable of, it just lit me up. Like I was so excited for them. And I got this passion and this drive to work a hundred hours a week in my early twenties, because I was so excited about motivating people and, you know, needing to deliver a talk that would help drive sales or hit a goal or, you know, creating interesting incentives for like representative trips or rewards and just having everything move in the right direction and kind of be like the captain of the ship. I really loved it. And so now that has kind of carried on into, you know, my business career is, you know, now I'm in commercial real estate sales. I understand I'm in the early phases where I need to prove that what I'm doing is working, build some momentum. But the whole goal for me is similar to you. It's like, let's get a team. And that's what I'm really good at. That's what I really love. So it's, uh, it's good to hear that you feel the same way. Yeah, you definitely have to make a distinction. I tell people all the time. 
it really can't be a money decision. It really has to be what motivates you, like you mentioned, because you will make more money as a broker typically. A lot of people assume business owners are extremely wealthy and make a lot of money. And I say, you know, honestly, the highest compensated people at our firm aren't always going to be the firm owner. And that's okay because that's actually how we're designed our compensation structure. And so we're comfortable with that. Um, but I think a lot of people are, are surprised to learn that. You know, yeah. I mean, business is very expensive. It's very time consuming. And if your goal is to do it to make a lot of money and to have a lot of free time, it's probably not the best choice for you. Um, right. But it can be really rewarding, especially when you invest a lot of time into people. And really what it comes down to is that's, that's something that's very important to myself and the business partner chat is we love to teach. We love to teach our clients. We love to teach our team. We just love to educate and share what we know with others. And so that just becomes naturally what we do. Gosh, that is such an important distinction. I really think that that's going to help some of my listeners out there who are high performing and considering starting their own team. Ask yourself that question. Are you doing that to make more money? Because if you are, don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but if you're doing it for the reason that your purpose in life is to inspire others, well, there you go, right? So yeah, you have to have pretty thick skin. People do let you down and sometimes you'll pour your heart and soul into somebody and you know, it might not work out or pan out. And so you really have to be prepared to, to keep moving even through those disappointments. Yeah, absolutely. So this podcast is really about action items for success. And what I found in my direct selling career at Cutco was that when a manager helped me break down my income goal to a single action, which was phone calls, well, then now all of a sudden it was like simple math. It was like, oh, 10 calls to one appointment, you know, industry average is 60% closing ratio. Mine's actually 90. So like working all these metrics, I can now break down what a phone call is worth, whether they answer or not. And that phenomenon like blew my mind in my early 20s. And then I was able to just focus on 20 calls a day, 20 calls a day. And that doesn't sound like a lot, right? When you're comparing that to cold calling, I'm sure you made like 100 calls before lunch, right? But the thing is, my income goals when I was in my early 20s paying for college were not very high, yeah. right? And so 20 calls a day was vastly larger than most other representatives in the country that would make five reluctant phone calls and then stop for two days and come back and make one or two more. It's like when I was hitting my 20 a day, my sales results were consistent, my income was consistent. And if I wanted to then double that, I just doubled the phone calls. It was simple, right? So my question to you is, what's the single most important action that you take on a daily basis now that attributes most to your success? It has changed from when I was the main breadwinner, I guess you could call it in the office, right? When I was breadwinner, it actually was phone calls or in-person prospecting. And exactly like you said, you can back it in exactly what that number is. Um, the challenge in commercial real estate, in my opinion, is that our sales cycles are so steep and long that it's really hard for someone new to the industry to believe, yes, that phone call was worth it because sometimes you might not see it worth it for a few years. So right. the sales cycles can be so challenging that they really have to trust their mentor and trust the system. That yes, we're, we're telling you the truth. That phone call, that visit, that meeting was worth it. Um, so yeah, I would say, I agree with you. It is phone calls in person. Now for me, like what, what I measure success off of and what I look for is, uh, more relationship oriented. I, I spend a lot of time developing relationships, not just with, um, potential clients and they go a little bit deeper, right? It's not just a first person visit anymore. And they're people that we've been working with a long time and exploring like, okay, you're here. Where do you want to get to the next level? Where do I need to be growing the company to be, continue to be your provider? 
this. If you're going to go take on 20 more properties, I need to know that, right? Like those kind of conversations are really key, but also uh, developing relationships with our quote unquote competitors, right? And that's something I wasn't accustomed to when I was working at a national firm. It was very much those guys versus us, you know, and we don't talk to each other. We don't need to talk to each other. We don't even co broke. We have our own buyers. Go away. Talk to anybody. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, so coming from that culture, it was a little bit different. I had to un- un- unlearn that, I guess. <laughs> I don't know the right word for that, but I had to learn to be a little bit more cooperative and also see the value in helping my competitors and building relationships with them and it comes back around. So now kind of my role is different. I try to create these relationships and dynamics and make it a little bit warmer of a place, a little bit warmer of a culture an environment and an industry for our brokers because I believe they'll get more deals done if I've worked the relationships ahead of time um, with some of the other firms. Interesting. And do you enjoy that role, how it's evolved? I really do, yes. Because initially when I came into the industry, it was a very cold place and it was primarily male-dominated, which didn't really bother me at all. There was a lot of older people in it, very established. Everyone was third or fourth generation real estate. And then here I was, right? I don't fit. I, I don't belong it was made known to me like you don't belong that's okay but the more time i spent there the more i realized hey you know what these are great people and i've got something to offer them they've got something to offer me we can all be a little bit different and get along and get some more deals done so the more time we all spend together the more time we learn to get along even with our differences the more my agents are going to make more your agents are going to make so i love doing whatever i can to make the industry a little bit more collaborative we created a last week i was like i'm so tired of all these stupid emails and these e-blasts like I'm going to get you guys all in the same spot. And so I was like, okay, there's this thing called Slack. I'm making y'all a channel and I am unsubscribing to all your emails. So if you want to talk to all of our people in our office, join Slack. And I got all of them in there. I got 164 of them in there and they're all sharing deals and making deals and talking in there. I'm like, yes, that's how we do it, guys. We got to collaborate. So just looking for ways where we can just build relationships and make more deals happen. It's really fun. Awesome. Both internally and externally. Yeah. So I'm curious on the commercial side, what percentage of your business is coming from referral and existing sphere as opposed to new business? Because on the residential side, being a digital marketing agency owner myself for you know four years, coming up on five years, having residential and commercial clients, there's a stark difference in the adoption of digital marketing, lead generation, and all the things going on on the residential side, and then commercial, where it's like, go make a thousand phone calls and, and like see what happens. So super curious what you're doing, you know, first, I guess, start off with, you know, what is that percentage? Is it 80, 20, is it 90, 10 for referral to new business? And then I'm curious about your, your new business acquisition tactics. Yeah, I would say it's 99 to one right now. <laughs> so when I first started in the business, it was, you know, hundred percent cold calling, hundred percent outbound of, of getting deals done. Um, in terms of our firm, I'll be specific. Our agents are still, the, especially the ones early in the career are still focused outbound, right? Um, but now as a firm, when we get property management business, when we get landlord leasing assignments, those kind of things from actual real estate investors, 99% of it, I don't think we've actually gone after particularly one or I'm, I'm sure there's, I'm going to say 99 because I'm sure there's one, right? That we've been like, hey, let's go after that. They've all been ones that have called us or approached us um, over the past several years. We've been really fortunate in that regard. And really that just comes from clients recommending us. Um, but a significant portion of our referrals come from other brokers, other commercial real estate brokers. So Mm. you can see why those relationships are really important to me as well. A lot of times firms will get tired of an assignment 
or they might feel they're not the right fit, or they might see us do something and be like, hey, they'd be good on this. And so they'll mention it to a landlord. And so a very large percentage of our business comes from other commercial real estate brokers recommending us. Interesting. Yeah. So that work in external relationship building is clearly paying dividends. It really is. It really is. And it's, uh, um, it's one of those things, again, that you don't see immediately. And a lot of people kind of scratch their heads like, why would you do that? Like, just, just be nice to each other. And, right. And, you know, and, and maybe it'll work out or we'll just enjoy work more. Either way. Yep. I love that. Great tip as well. Maybe we can warm up this industry. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> So where do you think the industry is heading? Do you have any predictions for, you know, commercial real estate? Uh, you could gear this answer towards your specific niche, or you could be more broad with like a five, 10 year projection. Um, really what I'm most curious about is what's your anticipation of a lot of the technology on the residential side trickling over to commercial? Yeah. I mean, as you know, commercial is really, really, really a late adopter when it comes to technology. And I remember, you know, seven years ago when we started the firm, I just would make a pretty brochure and everyone would be like, yes, it's amazing, right? It wasn't made on Word, right? So it was really easy to impress back then. It's getting more competitive, right? As people are adopting more technology, there are some really cool things. I definitely see cell phone stuff coming more into play when it comes to retail, right? Because getting to see consumer behaviors and where they're moving, where they're coming from and all of that is really fun. But as far as, you know, the brokerage side of things, how things will change uh, and property management, how it will change aside from technology. I think that we see um, a huge gap in the recruitment process. And many of my competitors that are, you know, in year 50 or 60 of their firm are experiencing that and seeing that. But there's a lot of people that, that it's not really attracting the young people like it used to because it's commission only or whatever the reason is, or property management is hard, let's be honest, right? And so for whatever reason, it's not really attracting newer and younger talent. Um, I believe it's just because we've made it such a stuffy kind of industry, right? And so that's another thing. Like we just got to lighten up a little bit and make ourselves a little bit more approachable and the talent will come. Um, and it has, but it's definitely becoming an issue and becoming really, really apparent as we're starting to lose some of that talent and that knowledge. And there's not immediately people who follow behind with it. And so people are desperately searching for that knowledge and desperately trying to obtain it um, that are coming into the industry. And if they don't have a mentor or someplace to get it, it's, it's created quite a problem. And is this referring to property management recruiting? Both. Both is, is property management and brokerage. Property management okay. and brokerage, yeah. So uh, it's, I mean, think about most brokerage firms that you know of, most property managers that you know of, and, I'm not, and maybe multifamily is different, right? But in retail and office, Think about what stage of life they're in. Yeah, and then you start to see really clearly we have a little bit of a problem in our industry, right? Where's the knowledge of, of those deals, right? Like people come in and go, that's a great deal. And then you go to the older generation, they'll be like, actually, every cycle that deal does have to trade hands with the bank, right? They know things about properties that the younger generation doesn't and hasn't seen, and it's not being passed on. Um, and mm. so that's definitely concern, but also an opportunity, right? Because the younger generation is more of a, I'll figure it out. I'll look it up on YouTube. I'll find a way. I'll self-teach, right? So making sure that those resources are available to those that are seeking it so that they can train themselves or find this industry and also making it virtual so they want to come and don't feel like they're joining a you know country club or something like that. 
think yes. it's really going to be a key important part to the survival of the broker industry. Interesting. Very astute insight. And uh, I would tend to agree with you. You know, as I put in my plans to scale my own brokerage, I am very clearly thinking about social media as a tool and using tools like YouTube to document my daily life processes and just really make it attractive to young up and coming real estate agents that might be just getting into the industry thinking about like, oh, should I do residential? What should I do? And then they come across a video and they're like, oh, here's this guy doing commercial multifamily. You know, he's not 60 years old. Like, you know, right. <laughs> he's, he's, ha he's having fun with it. Here he is with a client. And, and so that has not been implemented, but that's my vision. You know, I'm in the process right now of really, like I said, building up that momentum, that credibility through sales volume. And I understand that it's so important to walk the walk prior to then really going out there and saying, hey, join my team. Like <laughs> when I was a recruiter for Cutco, when I was on the sales report, which you had to sell a certain minimum that week in order to be on it, when my name appeared, people listened. Yeah. When my name didn't appear, people were like, who's this guy, right? T trying to teach me something. So I understand there's that authority that's important to have in order to have the listeners actually engage. But once you get past that, it's like, okay, now how do we attract the right talent? And I'm very conscious of, okay, this is the way I'm going to do it when that time comes. And really go for those younger up and coming individuals that are getting into the real estate industry. Kind of reminds me of the lumber industry. I had a three year stint in the lumber industry and by a long shot, I was the youngest person. I mean, the average age in the office was like 59. You know, it, it, people range from like 55 to 65. And so when I was in there as like a 25 year old, <laughs> there was like no one for, but for a long shot um, that even resembled someone that was my age. So I kind of equate it to that. It's like, how do we bring some new blood into this industry? Right. Yeah. It's not just a desire or a noble cause. I think it's an absolute need to our survival. And uh, for us, one of the ways we did it was out of need, like when we're scaling, something that'll be really important for you too, I think is you get asked the same questions a million times, right? And so suddenly your time is spent answering other people's questions versus doing your own deals. And so one of the ways I did it was I documented it and start putting all my systems and processes and making people go through the lessons online. And then I'm building by default a training program, like a written one with actual curriculum, which is not typical in commercial real estate. Mm. Um, and then it got, it grew and it became pretty substantial. Uh, everything from how the yellow eyes work to breaking down a lease and the different clauses and what they all mean and how to go on a first meeting and how to, you know, get the, handle objections on rep agreement and going through all of that, putting it online. And then we made it available to others during COVID because we saw that they were losing their internships and not able to finish their degrees. So we put it online for them and invited a few in and just did it for free just for kicks, I guess. And that was really well received and oversubscribed. And then we had competitors asking. So they started putting their people through it. And we realized, okay, now we know there's some value here. And that's been really fun for us. So we're going to kick that off again. We just did it our third time in a row and we had that system process down. And so we're ready to take that to kind of another level and let other firms and companies be able to train their people. Because ultimately, we just really like to teach. So that'll be kind of fun. But we're hoping that that helped bring in the next generation. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I love the fact that you invested in that online course style of learning so we could scale it and get your brokerage out there while educating. I love that. 
enjoy so, it. We try to insert a little humor into it as well. So they realize you know, it doesn't have to be too stuffy. Yeah. <laughs> and that'll help too. So what are, you know, one to three books that have greatly influenced your life and or career? Oh, that's a great question. Of course, being Christian, I have to say the Bible, <laughs> which isn't just saying that, it's true. Um, but in terms of business books, um, also, the I love the who when it comes to hiring. Um, it's really good for interviewing and gets down through a lot. Really, I, I have to force myself to read it again before I hire someone each time. It's, it's, it's really good information in there. I like the one thing as well as far as motivation and sales. Oh, I really enjoyed that book from the um, Never Split the Difference. That was a really fun one as well. So, I'm listening to that right now. That one's really fun. That one is phenomenal. I'm really excited to start implementing some of that because... You know, negotiation, I mean, permeates every aspect of everyone's life all day, right? I mean, you're it always is. negotiating something. And, so, and I hesitated reading that one for a while because I was like, never split the difference. That sounds like a really obstinate way to approach negotiations. I'm not interested. That's not my style. And then, and then I dug into the leader. I was like, okay, that's not actually what he's saying. <laughs> right. And he's so, saying when a life is on the line, you can't meet halfway. Yeah, I love it. So it's a really good book. I love that one. Yeah, so... Love that one. Highly suggest that. Uh, and like I said, it's fresh on my mind because I'm like 90% through listening to it right now and very excited. I've already implemented some of it. Works like a charm. It's like Jedi mind tricks. <laughs> so what is one of the most worthwhile investments you've ever made? And this could be non-monetary or it could be this incredible property you picked up and <laughs> cash flow day one, like it, wherever you want to take that. But uh, I'm, I'm curious. Property. Yeah, this will be an unusual answer, but the most important thing that I ever acquired was the things that I didn't. And I will say that because by becoming an entrepreneur, the, most, the thing that enabled me to be successful was my ability to go a very long period without any financial compensation. Mm. That became my competitive advantage. And so by maintaining my lifestyle and not acquiring a lot and by not having any debt, I was free to adjust for market cycles. I was able to outlive people, even though they might have been smarter, even though they might have been more capable. I was just leaner and lighter, and I could run farther. What an incredible tip and principle. So you mean that when you did start to get on your feet after five, six years in commercial real estate, and you were completing transactions, you didn't immediately upgrade your life to match the amount of income you're making? <laughs> no. In fact, um, and if, if anyone's considering starting their own firm, they should be very well aware of this. Uh, the house split when you start your own firm is the house gets 100% for a really long time. <laughs> it's a very hungry beast. And you're signing all your people's checks and not your own for a really long time right. um, before you can start to actually enjoy the fruits of your labor. So if you're planning on starting your own, just be prepared and look really, really long-term because it makes no sense each month. Mm. No, that, that makes sense. And, you know, living lean, having cash reserves, it's so important. Mm -hmm. I really look up to Apple as an example of that. I mean, they have more cash reserves than the U.S. government, <laughs> right? Crazy. So, Crazy. yeah. And to have that focus on not just getting a dollar and spending it, but really like, gosh, live within your means, like make some money, stay where you're at for a while, like build up those cash reserves, especially if you're going to go make a leap. I mean, so important. And my wife, 
I really appreciate this in her because she is very frugal in the sense of not wanting to build up a lifestyle that we now have to just work to maintain because our overhead is so high. Yeah, we can afford it at that time, but she was raised to think like, what if something happens? What if one of us is no longer making that income and all of a sudden we have to try and like do something to just meet our super high living expenses. So she's very much in line with what you're thinking of like, let's live comfortably, let's keep it here, let's make this, right? Which is way, way more, let's save a ton. And, <laughs> and uh, that, it's, it's counterintuitive to me, but I really appreciate that. And I've had to, in my 20s, really increase my financial literacy to almost like match where she's already at because it, it seems so second nature to her. But for me, I do impulsively want to go like get the new thing, get this, upgrade my car. It's That's my instinct. But then it takes the discipline to kind of reel it back in, look at the budget, live on, you know, 70% or whatever your percentage is. So really important key. I, I want to make yeah. sure that everyone got that. It sounds like you married well. <laughs> I did. She's phenomenal and very excited uh, about everything. We actually just got married earlier this month. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. And, you know, when it comes to real estate, I believe it's important to have an end game because most mistakes that are made in business are made prior to even launching the business, in my opinion, having no plan having no exit strategy. <laughs> so one question that a top broker posed to me, which is very powerful is how many real estate retirement parties have you been to? None, right? Alan. So, so there are stories of, you know, agents working late on a Friday and having a heart attack at 57 and, and like never got to enjoy you know, the fruits of their labor or died broke or whatever it is. Like, it's such a sad thing to think that so many agents are out there just living commission to commission. So I think it's really important to have that end game in mind. And I'm curious, do you have like a 10 year exit strategy for your brokerage? Do you want to like sell it for $80 million? And like, what's your exit strategy? What's your end game? You know, those are really valid questions that I'm still working through and trying to answer, but I had a bit of a wake up call a few years ago. And that is that just like you noticed, I mean, just people were never retiring and it wasn't because they didn't want to, it's because they couldn't. Um, and they were in deals and sometimes a little bit, they're real deal junkies, right? They, they want to stay in it sometimes. Yeah. But um, when it comes to owning a firm, I incorrectly assumed that I was building a business like any other business and that you could take the earnings and, you know, put it on a multiple and decide, ah, it's worth X and someone will acquire it. It's not really the case in brokerage. I was uh, fortunate enough to be the broker of record for some business brokers one time. And they were talking to me about how when they're in a service-based industry, they have to take the income of whoever is um, the owner of the firm that's going to be selling and exiting and remove it before they put it on any multiple because it's obviously not going to continue. Well, it's really practical. Obviously, that makes a ton of sense. Then you think, oh, if I'm 80% of the firm's revenue, we have a little bit of a problem. I'm actually working really, really hard to build something that has no value at all. I cannot be the breadwinner for the firm. And that was a mind shift change for me a couple of years ago when I realized I need to be spending more time investing into the team and their income streams than I need to be investing into my own. And um, so, yeah, as far as exit strategy, I don't know yet. I was 
29 when I started this thing. I've got a long ways to go still. And I love it so much that retirement seems really, really far away. But I will say, I now know I'm not going to neglect my 401k either <laughs> um, <laughs> because I, I can't just base the value of the business and think that that's going to be my retirement plan either. Um, so I've got a good 30 years left of working, 30 plus, right? So I don't know what the industry is going to look like then. I don't have all the answers. So I, I wish I had an answer for you. I should have an answer. I don't. No, that's very honest. And I think that would be the answer of 90% of people that I would ask that question. You know, most people don't go into business in general with an exit strategy, let alone real estate. I think a lot of people are attracted to real estate initially because they look at it from the outside in. They see a real estate agent driving a nice car and they're like, oh, real estate agents make good money. And in a lot of cases, it's extremely true. I just had a podcast this morning where a guy was going to school to be an engineer, where at that time he would have gotten out and made $30,000 a year as an entry-level engineer and then built his way up. But to pay for college, he did real estate his first year, made a hundred grand. <laughs> so it's like, you can make a significant income and it is exciting to close a deal. Oh gosh, the adrenaline, right? So it is easy to become that deal junkie and be in process. You mentioned the long sales cycles of commercial real estate. You're in the middle of five deals. How do you, you know, sit back out of those? So it's a very, it's a very alluring industry. And then all of a sudden, I feel like you're in the middle of it and there's no way out. So yeah, the, uh, the particular brokerage that I joined has those types of like retirement and stuff figured out. And I really value that because I had the, the opportunity to open businesses that have failed. And now when I get into something, I very critically ask like, what's my exit strategy? And it's super important. So, you know, if anyone out there has questions, feel free to ask. Um, I don't know it all either, but I think I'm doing this one right. So <laughs> um, with that being said, I do have another question here and it's really pertinent to either a business owner or a real estate professional because we have so many things going on. So when you feel overwhelmed or unfocused, do you have a set of questions that you ask yourself to get back on track or what's your process to now get back on track and not just like give up for the day? Like when you feel overwhelmed or unfocused, like what do you do to snap back in and continue taking action? Yeah, that's a really good question because I think sometimes we put it all on a to-do list. And you're just like, I don't even know where to start. You just stare out the window, just overwhelmed, right? And, just be, and so we tend to work on whatever the biggest fire is at the moment. I started something recently and I don't know if it's the right answer, but it seems to be working for me right now. So I'll look at my to-do list. And I'm like, introduce a resource, right? Which, and, and a, an expendable one that it goes away. But there are certain things on my to-do list that actually give me more energy when I've completed them. And so I look at my to-do list and I do those first. Mm. And that gives me the extra boost of energy I know I have um, than to knock out a couple of the others that might take more energy than they, they give me when they're completed. So there's certain things I know they say that's the wrong thing to do. You should do the thing that you're dreading doing the most. Maybe that's true too. Um, but sometimes you just get stuck and you're just like, I don't know where to begin. There's so many things. Let me just do something that brings me some joy that I enjoy that will bring me some immediate gratification and see if I can get myself out of this, this overwhelming feeling. And um, so that might be doing something creative for me or something like that, um, or just uh, checking in on a particular project or visiting with a client to find out how a location went. 
And then, then it might be like, oh, it's doing really well. I'm really excited. This is my best one. I'm like, all right, I'm excited. This is good. I did something good. And uh, I feel happy and energized by hearing that. And I can go on with the rest of the things I need to do. That's really important. I listened to a personal development speaker years ago, and he talked about the difference between time management and energy management. And you just mentioned it. You know, think about what activities give you energy, what activities drain your energy. And then when you look at it that way, you review last week's calendar, you might notice that on Monday, you stacked four energy draining activities first thing in the morning. And by noon, you were dead, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, interesting, right? You stacked all those activities, didn't consider maybe putting in one that gives you energy in the middle or starting with one that gives you energy that way you're lit up and you can get through the rest of them before you go take a break. So energy management, I think it's a great concept and you intuitively do it, which is amazing. Sounds like I should read that book. Sounds cool. <laughs> the speaker was Matthew Kelly, awesome public speaker, probably top five in the world. And uh, through Cutco, I was able to see him as included in a conference. So um, I think the concept there is, you know, say yes, go to conferences, always keep your ears open and just continue learning because you never know what little concept or one-liner years later will come back and you're like, oh, right? <laughs> Break it. So is there a question that I should have asked you or anything that you'd like to elaborate on from earlier? You put me on the spot. <laughs> no, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Okay. Well, how can listeners contact you? Um, LinkedIn is a great way because they can get all my information, contact information right off of there. So they just do a search for Bethany Babcock and Foresight Commercial Real Estate. So, and Foresight, I should mention, is spelled a little funny, right? Because we're people, we thought we were punny. We really, we just confused people. But it's it's uh, Foresight spelled, you know, like F-O-R-E-S-I-T-E, like site selection. Got it. Nice. I have been the victim of a punny business name that was not SEO friendly and uh, <laughs> never again. <laughs> like every time I hear all 20 people in this office have to spell it out. I'm like, man, Bethany. Yeah. <laughs> hey, that, that's okay. Learning lessons. Yeah. Well, I appreciate having you on. Bethany Babcock, everyone. Foresight CRE in San Antonio, Texas. They are offering property management, sales. I mean, a whole slew of services. And I know that I'm going to be in touch with you because I'm looking at some out-of-state investment in Texas. And I know that the property managers know what the rents are and what the deals are. So <laughs> That's right. I'll be in touch, but I uh, really appreciate having you on. Super valuable conversation. And I know that my listeners will have recognized that value and appreciate it too. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening. If you want to accomplish your real estate goals, then I highly suggest downloading my free ultimate real estate goal setting framework. The link is in the description of the show and it will help you break down your annual income goal into the amount of phone calls, appointments, or open houses you need in order to achieve that goal. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>